I don't know if you've ever read the book, uh, Not a Fan by Kyle Eidelman. Everyone read that book? It's a little older, a couple of you guys. Uh, in his book, Not a Fan, he defines a fan as an enthusiastic admirer. And so I'm assuming probably many of us are fans of something in this room. I see some kids in here. If they're playing sports, you're probably the number one fan of your kids. Or maybe you're a fan of a, of a specific music group or an actor or actress. Or maybe it's a sports team like myself. I am from Sandusky, Ohio. Yes, I literally live five minutes from Cedar Point, which is awesome. But I also am a Buckeye. Well, thank you for the warm reception this morning. I feel encouraged. But Michigan fans, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to this website. It's called, when is the last time Michigan beat OhioState.com? Truly, something like that. I went to it this morning. Did you know, <laughs> fake news he said, do you know it's been 3,501 days since Michigan beat Ohio State? Also, uh, I have a son who's about to be nine. He has never seen Ohio State lose to Michigan in his lifetime. But I'm not here to talk about the Buckeyes. I am here to talk about uh, more of an extreme love for a team than even that. It's my love for the Cleveland Browns. I, I know, you can laugh all you want. Trust me, I get it. When my mom remarried when I was uh, 10 years old, she married a guy who was a diehard Browns fan and we started going to all the games, season ticket holders. So I, to this day, I watch every game, no matter what I'm doing. My life revolves around when the Browns are on. I know it's terrible, pray for me. But I go to a game or two a year. If you go into my closet, uh, I have Cleveland Browns jerseys from years ago I don't even get rid of because you just never know. I have Browns flags up in my basement, Browns flag in my garage. If you were to come to my office at our church, I have Browns stuff everywhere. Um, when, <laughs> when I was growing up, when we were going to uh, some of the Browns games, uh, we would yell a lot, but I took that back into my house and I also yell as well. I pretend I'm like I'm there. Even though they can't hear me, I assume maybe they can hear me, so I'm yelling as if I'm the coach. And now I have two sons who share that fandom with me. I took them to their first game last year. It was a blast. And they yell at the TV too, just like I do. So usually about four o'clock in the afternoon, I am apologizing to my wife for all of the yelling that we do because we're going crazy. Speaking of my wife, uh, when we had our two boys, I asked them if we can name one of them after a Browns player. Uh, sad to say, I do not have Bernie Kosar Lapata anywhere in my household, but I am a fan of the Browns. But even though I'm a huge fan of the Browns, after Sunday, I go back to my old life. Even though I feel like I'm a coach or I feel like I could play, I can never do that. I just go back to my old life. Oftentimes, my passion wanes as they lose, which they've done every year consistently for 20 years until last year. When I'm watching the Super Bowl, I'm dreaming of being a Chiefs fan or a Patriots fan because they are always in the Super Bowl. And so at the end of the day, though I am a huge supporter and fan of the Browns, by the time I'm done with a game or a season, I'm a half-hearted fan, if I would call it that. That's why Kyle Eilman wrote the book, Not a Fan. Because he said there's a lot of fans out there, a lot of admirers out there, a lot of Sunday morning supporters or fans of Jesus, but there's a lack of followers. He put this in the book and I agree with it. He says this, I think Jesus has a lot of fans these days, fans who cheer for him when things are going well, but who walk away when it's a difficult season. 
fans of Jesus who know all about him, but they don't know him. That's key. Eidelman goes on to say the biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't interested in following Jesus. You know, as a pastor, I try to keep up with all of the, uh, the stats and those things that say that the, the church in the 21, 21st century is declining, and I see that. The problem is it's not the culture and its influence on the church that I believe is causing the decline. I believe it's coming from the inside out. I believe it's those who go to church on Sunday because they're fans of Jesus, but come Monday, they're just fans. They're not followers. We don't see any evidence of Jesus in their life, maybe as a parent or as a boss or as a coworker or just in the everyday aspects of life where we should see Jesus. We don't see Jesus because we're fans. And that's why I believe through what Jim and I wanna show you this week as we look at scenes and stories from the gospels, we need to go back to what biblical discipleship looks like. Discipleship literally means to be a learner. I wanna look again with you, what does it mean to be a learner or a follower of the way of Jesus? What does he say? What does he require? What is he gonna, at the end of the day, what would he say? These are what uh, characteristics of a disciple look like. And so we've recognized um, six of them for you on this journey of discipleship that Jim and I will speak on all week. Today, we're gonna look at the call and then we'll look at the stages of discipleship, the process of discipleship, the dangers of discipleship, the, re uh, the results of discipleship and the rewards of discipleship. I really want you this week not to just come to these sessions because you just wanna hear more biblical teaching. I want you to come to these sessions asking yourself, am I a follower of Jesus? Not saying I'm a follower of Jesus, but do I see it in my life in all aspects? And if not, why does Jesus have you here this week and what does he want to do with you? So let's pray together. Father, we come today tired, but excited for a week ahead. But Lord, you don't call us here just for the good food or a vacation environment, though we love that. I believe every single person is here this week because you are asking us to truly evaluate our hearts. Even though we may call ourselves Christians, even though we go to church all the time, even though we own 16 Bibles, even though we pray before meals, are we followers according to you? And what would it look like by the end of the week if we were? By your grace, would you touch us in ways we can't even imagine through your word and through providential relationships all week? We pray in your name, amen. So if your Bibles turn to Luke chapter five, one of my favorite stories in scripture, this is the call of some of Jesus's disciples. And so we're gonna join uh, Luke in Luke chapter five, verse one through three. It says, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge, two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put it out a little from shore. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, wherever Jesus went, crowds would follow. And as Jesus' ministry increased, more crowds would follow. And they would press in. The problem is, if you weren't in the inner circle, you couldn't hear Jesus. So here Jesus is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And in order to create an environment where people could hear him, he couldn't just put on one of these things. That would have been helpful back then. 
So he has to create like an amphitheater presence where he can speak and the echoes would uh, help everybody hear. And so he goes out onto a boat and he pushes it out to shore and he starts to teach there. But we're going to find out this isn't a random boat because if you're aware of Jesus, if you're aware of the gospels, if you're aware of Jesus in your life, there's nothing random about Jesus. This isn't just a boat. This isn't just a teaching. This is Simon's boat. And Jesus, unbeknownst to Simon, is about to change his life forever. Look what happens. When he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. Now here is Peter. He is with the other disciples and they are fishermen. Not only is it what they do, it's who they are. They know the craft. It has become who he is. When he's walking around, he is Simon the fisherman and he knows exactly when to go out, which is at night. He knows exactly where to put the nets. He knows exactly what place in the water to do that so that he could get as much fish as he can and make a living for his family. The problem is he goes out that night and he doesn't catch anything. And I'm wondering if he's thinking, oh my goodness, how am I gonna support my family? What does this mean? He's disappointed, he's angry, he's confused. Why can't I catch fish? And so here's Jesus, he's teaching and Simon thinks just Jesus is teaching and then he's gonna go away. But then all of a sudden Jesus turns to him and say, hey, why don't you put the nets out for a catch? And Peter's like, does this guy know anything about fishing? We're gonna find out he does just in his own way. But what does this guy know? I mean, I just went out all night. I caught nothing. Now he wants me to go out during the day. No one does that. I'm gonna look foolish. He wants me to put my nets out in the water. Why would I ever do that? But Simon says, okay, I respect this guy. This guy's teaching's pretty good. And so I'll see what happens. Verse six and seven. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Has anyone seen the show Chosen, The Chosen in here? Some of you have. If you haven't, I love this scene. Simon is portrayed as this fisherman who has a past, who's married. He's, you could tell he's had a rough life and here he is, he's catching, he's not catching fish and then he puts the, the nets in and all of a sudden you just see the boat go whoom, one to one side and all these fish are jumping in the nets, they're jumping into the boats. Simon is like, oh my goodness, he's freaking out. So then he calls to, his, to these other brothers and he says, come over here. We need your boat. And we see here that that boat starts to fill to the point where both boats are sinking. And they recognize, whoa, this guy isn't just a teacher. This guy's a miracle worker. Like we are in the midst of a miracle. I didn't even know God still did those, but it is happening in our boat. But the greatest part of this, that isn't the miracle that is truly astonishing. The miracle is what happens in Simon's heart as a result of what Jesus does. Because here's what Simon does. When Peter or Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had just taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. I don't know if you noticed this or not. It took me a while to notice it, but do you notice now that Luke has been referring to Simon as Simon this whole time until here, he calls him Simon Peter and doesn't call him Peter the rest of the time. 
Why does he call him the name that Jesus will end up calling him? Because this is the transformation. This is when it happens. This is when Peter's heart turns because he is standing in the presence of a holy God and he recognizes, I am unworthy. He is standing in in the sight of purity and he recognizes that his life is filthy. And he can't help but fall down on his knees because he is standing face to face with God himself. This scene always reminds me of the Old Testament scene in Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah is about to be called as a prophet for Yahweh. And right before that happens, he catches this vision of God and he recognizes how holy God is and how unholy he is. And here's Isaiah's response. He says, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And this is exactly what happens to Peter. I mean, imagine Peter is standing in the boat and he's face to face with Jesus himself, God incarnate. And he recognizes all of these things. He recognizes that he's worthy, holy, and perfect. And this God not only came to this earth, but now he's come into his boat. He recognizes God's goodness. And the only response is to fall down at his knees and worship. See, that's the first step in being called by Jesus. It's coming face to face with him and recognizing that he is God and we are not. It's recognizing that he is holy and I am not. It's recognizing he is worthy and I am not. Recognizing that he is pure and then I am not. When you come face to face with Jesus, you recognize all of the things that you've done wrong in your life. All the things that is inside of you that you're thinking, how can I be in the presence of such holiness? You recognize for your entire life that you've been living out of sin, out of this sinful nature where you have been the God of your own life, where you have decided up until this point, I make the choices, I'm in control. And we know as we look at our own life, when we allow sin to get in even now or even before we are called by Jesus, the destruction and the devastation that sin has on our lives. I oftentimes see this in relationships. Anytime my wife and I are arguing and I'm not allowing my humble heart to come through. I'm, I am steeped in sin. I am steeped in pride. It has consequences in our marriage that can sometimes last days. And that's what sin does. Sin will get in the middle of the greatest of relationships. It will not allow you to have the intimacy, whether with a spouse or a friend or kids or whatever, because that's what sin does. Or we're in the presence of Jesus, we recognize our shame. And what I mean by shame is this. So often we don't like who we are. And so we project someone that we're not, hoping that someone will laugh at us, hoping someone will accept us, hoping someone will want us. But we know deep down that we don't even want ourselves. And so we project someone that we're not. And I think when Peter sees Jesus face to face, all these things are going in in him. And he recognizes he is in the presence of God and he doesn't know what else to do instead of worshiping. But I imagine that he's thinking, oh my goodness, now that I've been in the presence of God, I am going to die. It's over for me. 
But what happens next is truly remarkable. The first part of verse 10, then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. Of all the responses that Peter thought Jesus would utter, I bet you he never thought he would say those phrases. Don't, those words, don't be afraid. Those words are not condemnation. Those words are not of judgment. Those words are of love and grace. He doesn't say, man, Peter, let's sit down the boat. Let's talk about your sin because man, you are a mess. In fact, if I were to get you a present someday, I would look for a coffee mug that says world's greatest sinner. And you would be able to hold that. I mean, come on, look what you've done. I've seen your marriage, how you treat your wife. I've seen what you've done. I've seen you put your worth in fishing far more than your share. I see all of these things, but he doesn't do that. Jesus climbs in Peter's boat and instead of condemning him, he heals him. He puts his hand of grace on him. How many of us truly think that when we think of God, we think he's up in heaven, he's just disappointed in us. He's disapproving of us. He's sitting back in his rocking chair with his arms crossed in front of him, thinking, oh, you're just doing that again? If you've had a hard relationship with a dad, you know how hard you work to earn your dad's approval, but at the end, you never will. Sometimes we approach God like that. Like, man, God, you just are disappointed with me. Like I try and I try and I try and I try, but I fail. But when we see Jesus in the boat, it has to change our relationship with God and how we view him. Because Jesus said he has come to reveal the father. And Jesus could have been anywhere in anyone else's boat, but at that moment he is in his boat and he stoops down to Peter's level. He says, I want you. I know what you've done. I know what you still will do, but I want you, don't be afraid. And I love after Jesus, he reestablished this relationship with Simon. He then says this, now you will fish for people. Not only is it to be reconciled to God, but it's also to understand our purpose and mission. When Peter hears Jesus say, now you're gonna go fish for people, he imagines himself like, wait a minute, I, I'm really, really good at fishing. That's all I know. Now you're calling me to fish for people? And Jesus like, that's exactly what I'm doing. You see, for your whole life, you've been known, been known as a fisherman. You're identified as a fisherman. Your worth is as a fisherman. But now I'm actually come to give you your true purpose. It's not to fish for fish. It's to fish for people. In other words, what I am doing for you, I want you to go do for others. I am not calling you to live for just yourself or your family anymore. I'm asking you to follow me in a way where your life and your purpose will be tethered to me that I'm going to use you in ways you can't even imagine. So let's go, follow me, let's fish for people. Let's become who I know you can become. And my favorite part of this whole story, so they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. If I had to capture these words into one word, it would be the word surrender. John Stott, in his book, Basic Christianity, says, surrender is giving up the rights of my life. That's exactly what Jesus is asking these fishermen, and Simon in particular, to do. In order for you to truly follow me, to become who I want you to become, you need to leave your old ways behind, which include your boat, your nets, everything familiar to you, and follow me. You know, we hear the word surrender, oftentimes it's in the negative, like I'm surrendering myself. It's like we talk about it to be a loss, but 
When Jesus talks about surrender in the gospels and what Peter is doing here, surrender is a paradox. For when Peter loses his life for Jesus, Jesus says he finally can have life. He's literally saying, leave it all behind because what I have for you is far more worth what you can imagine. That's what it means to be called to be his follower. It's to allow Jesus to come into your life and you recognize who he is and all you can do is worship because he is holy and we are not. He is pure and we are sinful. But we recognize that Jesus has come to us to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. That he is face to face with us and when we recognize our sin, he says, don't be afraid. I know who you are. I know what you've done, but I still want you anyways. And not only do I want a relationship with you, I want to use you. I want to send you out into your family. I want to send you out into your workplace. I want to send you out into the world. And I want you to represent me in such a way that when people walk away from you, they have a sense in who God is based upon how you live your life among them. So leave it all behind. I know it's scary, but it's worth it. Follow me. I imagine there's probably a time in your life where you remember. I remember when I was five years old, or I remember when I was at Gull Lake and someone gave the message and I I surrendered my life to Jesus. Maybe you're a little bit older like I was. Regardless, you remember that time. I'm grateful for that. But I'm not here to look back at the time that you asked Jesus to be your savior. I'm asking, is he still? Not that you would say, yes, absolutely. Jesus, my savior, he died on the cross for me. I know that I'm gonna go to heaven someday and I know he brought heaven down here so that I can live uh, according to his life. I, I get that, but is he your Lord? Are you still surrendered to Jesus or have you surrendered to something else? Is Jesus in your life because you go to church, because you listen to Christian music, because you pray before a meal, and you have your kid in a Christian school? Or is Jesus your Lord because he is your everything and you're leaving everything else behind in order to follow him? That's the key. You can call yourself a Christian, but that doesn't mean that we're following Jesus. When I uh, came to know Jesus, I was 17 years old. I remember a long time before that, when my parents were still married, my mom and dad, we never uttered the name Jesus in our household. We weren't atheists, we were just agnostics. And the reason for that is my dad grew up in a home where he was forced to go to church and then he saw how the pastor acted, he saw how his parents acted, and then he said once he he leaves his house, he will never step foot in church again. He never thought his son would be a pastor either, but that's God's sense of humor. My mom grew up Jewish, but it was a cultural Judaism. They didn't go to church on Sundays. They went to church on Friday and they would go to the temple. But if my uncle was playing football because he's a really good football player, they were in the stands, not in temple. It was a cultural thing for them. But because they met, they got married and God was not a part of our life. Even when my parents got divorced and married other people, it's not like we started going to church or go to youth group, whatever that is. We just, it was never part of our life. I remember when I was 17 years old, it was the summer right before my senior year. And sometimes you get to the point in life where you're just broken and you don't know how to repair it. Like I remember going to bed at night and I was so empty. My life was so meaningless. And this isn't, these aren't cliches. Like I didn't want to wake up in the morning half the time. I was so insecure that I would bully other people. I was so insecure that I would try to disrupt my classmates in our school so they would laugh at me. So somehow I felt like they liked me. I didn't like myself and I had no purpose and no mission in life. 
It was fruitless. And then my best friend at the time, we would always hang out on Sunday nights and I called him, hey man, what do you want to do tonight? He's like, I, I can't hang out. And I was like, oh, that's no problem. So then I called him the next Sunday. He's like, I can't hang out. I go, why not? He goes, I'm going to church. I go, what do you mean you go to church? When did that happen? He's like, I go to this church called the chapel. In fact, I'm going to their youth group. You should come with me. And I just started to laugh. I'm like, mm, church and I, we don't get along. I don't even know what God is or the Bible. And I feel like I'd be out of place. And he said, I think you should come sometime. The reason I started to come is because I saw my friend who was just like me start to change. He was insecure. He became secure. He didn't have a lot of joy in his life. He was joyful. I'm like, why is this happening? It was so confusing to me, yet attractive at the same time. So I went to church for the first time, went to this youth group. And around that time, I started to follow Jesus. Like I felt like myself, oh my goodness, I can leave my old ways behind. I can leave my old way of life behind. I have pa passion and purpose and a mission. And I don't have to do, try to be someone that I'm not. Like God loves me for me and he wants me to grow in that. It was, it was such a great time in my life. But then it started to change. And it's sad to me is when I was in high school that last senior year, I was known as the kid who was making a difference. Whereas before I was known as the troublemaker. Like my teachers and my peers, they actually wanted to be around me and they wanted me to be a leader. In fact, one of my best friends is the high school principal at the high school I went to. He's like, Eric, teachers still talk about you. <laughs> that was like 19 years ago. I'm like, let it go of that. But now they talk about me like, he's the pastor at your church? That's really weird. But then I just drifted. I was following Jesus and then I went off to college. And you may say, oh, it's because you went to college that you fell from Jesus. No. In fact, for my first two years of college, I was strengthened in my relationship with Jesus. I was still going to church. I was now serving in our youth group. I was leading the Bible study on campus. In fact, there were two secular campuses within a mile of each other. I was leading both the Bible studies. And something changed. And I thought in the moment, it was like that radical, oh, I fell and that's what happened. But it's like what the Casting Crown song says, slow fade. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away it's a slow fade when black and white turn to gray. And then they say at the end of the song, people never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. And as I look back, I, I started to see that Jesus was in my life, but he wasn't my life. That's a huge difference. You may have Jesus in your life, but if he isn't your life, then whatever it is that you've chosen over Jesus becomes your life. He becomes your God. He is what you're surrendered to because Jesus won't let us surrender to two things at once. And I recognized that I went back to some of my old ways, trying to be approved of. And I started dating this girl. And though she was a Christian, I attached my whole worth and value in her. And when we broke up, man, I just went off the rails. In college, I would lead a Bible study at eight o'clock. By 11 o'clock, I was doing things that I shouldn't be. I'll keep it PG with kids in here. I remember one time my RA, he knocked on my door and I opened it up and we had been doing some things in our room and we were in a bad state of mind. And he said, Eric, I have to turn you in because you're underage. And he said, but can I just be honest with you? He said, I'm really disappointed in you. And he had tears in his eyes. Three hours before he knocked on my door, he was in my Bible study. And it was at that moment, I was like, what's going on? And I recognized that Jesus can call you and Jesus can have a relationship with you and he desires that forever, but that doesn't mean that we continue on in our relationship with him. Like I'm still a Christian, but I'm not a surrendered Christian. 
I, I still believe that I'm going to heaven, but I'm not living for the heaven on earth that Jesus said I could live in if he is the king of my life. It was a slow fade. And now I don't do that because I'm a pastor, right, Paul? I'm very perfect in my home. No, that's not true. I just hide it better. Like I could stand up here and teach, but I could also be sitting like crazy and you wouldn't even know it. And sometimes that happens. The same thing is with you here. You know what it means to carry your Bible or read your Bible or go to church and sing the songs or have Christian songs in your car or pray before a meal or call yourself a Christian. But when you look at your life, it's Jesus plus something else. And because Jesus plus something else has happened, it has made us go away from our first love. It's the reason why so many of us are coming to a camp like this or we go to church or we read our Bible, we feel empty or we feel meaningless. It's because something else other than Jesus has become our meaning. My favorite author in the world, Tim Keller, he puts it this way. If you say I'm gonna obey Jesus, if I'm gonna follow Jesus, he's my Lord. If my career thrives, I'll obey you if my health is good. I'll obey you if my family is together. Then the thing that's on the other side of that if is your real master, your real goal. But Jesus will not be a means to an end. He will not be used. If he calls you to follow him, he must be the goal. Look at your life with Jesus. Don't just come to write notes and then go back to your life next Monday. Is Jesus truly Jesus? Or is it Jesus if you do this? Is it Jesus and I want this? It's Jesus, however, you must do this. We can't cling on to Christ and go back and cling on to our nets at the same time. It doesn't work that way. And yet it's so easy for all of us to do. Oftentimes it's subtle. I mean, think of your life. Is your private life and public life whole? That's called integrity. The way you treat your kids in public, is it the same way you treat them in private? The same way you put your arm around your wife in public, is that the same way you treat her in private? The same way that you call yourself a Christ-following boss, do your coworkers agree with that? Do the schools know you as a parent who is on their side? Do the schools know you as a parent? Here we go again. Like there's a difference. If it's Jesus, we're gonna follow Jesus and we become like Jesus and the Jesus way uh, comes in us and through us. If not, there's something else getting in the way. For Peter, he followed Jesus up until the end. And then he denied him. Not once, not twice, but three times. And I always think to myself, how could he do that? He was with Jesus. And I think to myself, I deny Jesus all the time. By my thoughts, by my words, by my actions. And here's Peter. He realizes what he does wrong. He's filled with guilt. And so what does he do? He goes back to what he knows. He begins to fish again. Here's the story of what happens when he goes back to the boats and the nets. This is in the Gospel of John, towards the end of chapter 21. Simon Peter says, I'm going out to fish, he told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got the boat, but that night they caught nothing. That sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? And they said, no. He said, throw your net out to the right side of the boat and you will find some. That sure sounds familiar, doesn't it? And then when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, 
he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. You think about this story. Jesus comes to Peter. He follows Jesus. Then he denies Jesus. And where is Jesus? Pursuing Peter again. Right where he was before. As he's fishing. As he realizes, man, I'm catching nothing. That is a segue to his life. He's doing nothing now with his life. He goes back to what's familiar. And here's Jesus. He's like, put the nets in again. Catches the fish. Peter realizes it's Jesus. What does he do? He jumps out of the boat. He leaves it behind and goes back to Jesus. I love that imagery of the boat's just floating in the water. The nets are still cast, but he doesn't care because Jesus hasn't given up on him. He came right back to his boat and he's calling him to follow him again. And what I love about the scene is here is Jesus. What is he doing waiting for Peter? He is cooking him breakfast. Why does he do that? It's a symbol of friendship. It's the reason why you and I have people in our homes for meals, to show them that we love them, to to establish that connection with them. That's exactly what he is doing for Peter here. I don't know what has taken you away from Jesus and led you back to your old way of life. I don't know what is your net or what is your boat. But Jesus promises, even when you and I deny him with his life, His grace is such that he pursues us even where we're not supposed to be in order to call us back to himself. That's what this week is about. I hope you have fun. I hope you eat good food. I hope your kids have a great time. But really, Jesus has you here to ask you, are you a fan of his or are you a follower? And if you have forgotten what it means to follow Jesus, Jesus has come to Gull Lake Ministries where you are this week to ask you to come back to him. This whole week is all about surrender, giving up my rights. Because when Jesus says, if you lose your life and leave it behind, you will find it. And I hope for some of us here this week, maybe we've lost our way, but this week we find it again. Let's pray together. Lord, I just love the story of Peter. Your grace is so ridiculous. You come to us in our worst, and then you come to us again in our worst. Jesus, if there's anything in our hearts competing for you, big or small, that is causing us to find our worth and value in something else other than you, Jesus, we surrender to you. For we know you are waiting for us on the beach, waiting for us to leave it behind and to go back to you. Whatever that thing is, either big or small, that's causing us to forget about you and not live for you, Jesus, help us to let go so we can cling back onto you. For your glory and for our sake, in Jesus' name.